This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Pop culture, baby, that's what's going on today. Because today, Good Faith fam, we have with us just a fantastic guest. He's a resident scholar at American Jewish University, the author of the fabulous monthly essay from Mosaic Magazine, Friend of the Pod, uh, last month on the Holy Land in Hollywood's imagination. He's Rick Richmond, and we're going to talk about the land of Israel and the state of Israel in cinema and what that can tell us about America and American ideas and so much more. But first, let's set this up. Okay, so in my community, Jewish community where I come from, we just celebrated the holiday of Purim, which commemorates the events recorded in the biblical book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther has a fascinating history as a, a foundational text in Western civilization, helping some of the West's greatest thinkers wrestle with events from the ascension of Elizabeth I to the royal throne of England in 1558 during the contentious times between Catholics and Protestants to Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But I want to focus on a, a particularly ancient tradition about the book that's first recorded in rabbinic literature over a millennium and a half ago. The tradition goes like this. When the Book of Esther's villain, Haman, cast lots to determine the month in which he would exterminate the Jews, and the lot fell on the month of Adar, Haman was overjoyed. Now, why? Because, as Haman gloated, Adar was the month in which Moses had died, which would surely make it, so he thought, a propitious time for murdering Jews. But little did he know, continues the tradition, that while Moses may have died in Adar, he was born on the very same day in Adar as well. Now, one of the great Jewish commentators on rabbinic literature, a remarkable savant by the name of Rabbi Samuel Adels, also known as the Maharsha from 17th century Poland, Maharsha asked the obvious question, how would Haman have known either of these things, right? The date of Moses' death or the date of his birth? Maharsha provides a clever answer and he says, well, the date of Moses' death doesn't require a genius to figure out. If you read the text of the Bible plainly and you account for the time elapsed between the book of Deuteronomy, the last of the Mosaic books, and the book of Joshua, who's Moses' successor, you'd be able to figure out the date upon which Moses passed. But the date of Moses' birth, by contrast, that was a tradition maintained by Jewish commentators and one that you wouldn't know about unless you actually studied with Jewish scholars themselves. And so it turned out that Haman's downfall resulted from the fact that he was willing to learn about the Jews on his own through reading their literature like the Bible independently, but he was unwilling to learn about the Jews by actually studying with them. And his attempts at study, in other words, were ultimately self-centered. They were less about the Jewish people themselves than about his own ambitions, his dreams, and his fears. And this is what led him to assume that the month of Adar was a time of mourning rather than one of celebration. And the lesson in this interpretation is one of authenticity, of sincere curiosity. When you study something, are you actually trying to understand it? Or are you simply looking for something convenient upon which to project your own aspirations and anxieties? And it's all the more urgent to ask this question about the land and people of Israel, the Holy Land, a global and particularly Western object of fascination, if ever there were one. And yet, because for all that fascination, for all that attention, how much do Westerners really understand about it? 
And this very question was actually the subject of a penetrating essay from Mosaic Magazine last month. And to discuss it, I brought on the author himself. He's a resident scholar at American Jewish University, a supremely talented thinker. He's the one, the only, Rick Richmond. Rick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you talk in your essay, which I encourage everybody to go read at Mosaic. Subscribe, subscribe for myself. It's amazing. You talk about three major American films, uh, some of the best known films of the last hundred years, actually, at least for two out of the three, as kind of landmarks in the American entertainment industry's imagination of the state of Israel. And each one says something about America's perception of Israel at that point in time, but also maybe more importantly about America's kind of understanding of itself. And it's the tension between those two things that animates essay. So let's start with the first one, the movie Exodus, it's Oscar winner, Paul Newman. I mean, it's a giant of American cinema and it's really, a, it is entirely about the creation of, of the modern state of Israel. So what does Exodus tell us about the American imagination at the time and how it thinks about the East? Well, Exodus was an important movie because uh, it was made during the first decade of Israel, and it was based on one of the most best-selling books of all time, which was Leon Uris's novel, Exodus. And Leon Uris had decided that he would read every book he could on the history of Israel. He read 300 books. He went to Israel, he traveled 50,000 miles within Israel, recording interviews with over 100 people. And he wrote a book that sold millions of copies and is still in print today, 70 years later. And Otto Preminger took that novel and made it into a film with Paul Newman, as you mentioned, Eva St. Marie, and one of the other great stars of the time. And he had Leon Uris as his scriptwriter, screenwriter. Uris turned in a script and Otto Preminger rejected it. And the two of them never spoke another word to each other. And instead of Leon Uris, Otto Preminger hired Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo was one of the Hollywood 10 who had been blacklisted because he was uh, a member of the Communist Party. Otto Preminger hired him in part as a protest against the blacklist at the time in McCarthyism. Uh, the problem with Dalton Trumbo was he had no real knowledge of Jewish history. And he chose to do a movie that really differs significantly from the novel. The novel is a book about Jewish history. The film is more like a Hollywood Western with Paul Newman as being the John Wayne character, the Jewish John Wayne, who comes to the Holy Land to help create the state of Israel. It has a different perspective, and the different perspective is typified by the way the novel ends versus the way the movie ends. The novel ends with a Seder, a Passover Seder, recounting, rereading the story of the exodus that Moses led from the land of Egypt. It's the archetypal event in Jewish history. And there they are, Israel's about to declare its independence 3,000 years later. 
And they're sitting around the table realizing they've lost a lot of people. They're going to have to fight a war after they declare independence. But it's a very uplifting, even if sobering scene. And the novel's 600 pages long. So the reader, by the time he or she has gotten through those 600 pages, feels what the characters feel, which is the monumental achievement of recreating the state of Israel after two millennium. That's the book. That's the book that sold millions of copies. The movie ends differently. The movie ends with a scene that's created out of whole cloth. It wasn't in the novel, and it certainly wasn't in real life, where one of the principal Jewish characters and one of the principal Arab characters are buried together in the same grave. And Paul Newman gives a eulogy, which is a a reflection of the American desire for peace, of everybody getting along together, of Arabs and Jews in the future sharing the land. It's a very different perspective. It's an American perspective that there's no problem that can't be solved if people will sit down and reason together. So it's a Hollywood version of a novel that was the novelization of Jewish history. And what I did was to look at the two different perspectives, because they're two different media. The novel is something to be read, the movie obviously to be seen for an hour, two hours, maybe three hours at most, and to create mass entertainment. And so the Hollywood version of the story of Exodus becomes, in effect, a Western cowboy movie instead of a movie of Jewish history. And you can tell the difference between the two media by the fact that the movie was successful because it had a built-in audience of millions, but it only received three relatively minor Oscar nominations, and it won only one, which was for the very stirring score. Everybody who was of a certain age remembers the music from the movie and later on the Pat Boone lyrics that were added to the score. But they don't remember the movie itself. And I myself went to see it as part of the research for the essay I was doing. And I was surprised at how different the movie was than the book. And Leon Uris, as a novelist, has been criticized, was criticized at the time. It was popular literature, not great literature. But having read it, all 600 pages to write this essay, I had the same experience that Jews had in America 70 years ago of pride in the extraordinary accomplishment and then disappointment actually in the movie because it failed to capture that. It simply captured what happened in 1948 and was in a certain sense a beautiful hope or prayer for peace. But as we all know, in the last 70 years, that, that hasn't happened. So... That was my attempt to look at the difference between a Hollywood perspective and the perspective of a Jewish novelist for the pivotal event in modern Jewish history. It feels like there's something there in the fact that the one thing about the movie that has kind of lasted and even and achieves recognition was the score and the lyrics by Pat Boone, right? So the score is actually composed by someone Jewish, if I'm not mistaken. And Pat Boone is himself a person of faith. And is is there something to the fact that a movie that, as you point out, kind of very 
self, if not conspicuously, then at least very self-consciously kind of denudes itself of any of the trappings of the particularity of faith and tradition, that the one thing that survives from it was composed and created by people who actually take that thing seriously. Yes, the composer of the score came to, it was a Jewish immigrant from Austria after Hitler took over Austria. Right, like Viennese, right? Viennese. His family got him to America. He was a young man when he wrote this score, but he appreciated America and he certainly had witnessed as a child what happened in Eastern Europe in 1938. And Pat Boone, as you say, was an evangelical Christian. He was in his 20s at the time. And these two, not the sort of Americans who made the movie, were the ones who made a score and a lyric that itself was the the most enduring thing of this major music. So if you talk to anybody who uh, either saw the movie at the time or or has seen it since, it is the music that carries it. And the lyrics were lyrics that were extraordinarily invigorating. And so interestingly enough, the music by a Austrian immigrant and an evangelical Christian from the South captured the novel better than did Otto Preminger and his screenwriter, Dalton Trumbo. There's a quip, I'm probably gonna butcher it, but there's a quip about the movie Exodus and kind of the role that it plays in constructing the American imagination about the Middle East, which is, so what what Exodus does, as you describe in the essay, is it completely recreates this very Jewish-looking figure from the book, Ari ben Kanan, as Paul Newman, this, like, chiseled, all-American, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Midwestern boy. And so what happens in the book of Exodus is it's like America choosing to see Israel as, like, the white people of whatever that Middle Eastern conflict is. And at the time that Exodus is made, that's that's what you want to be. Whereas now, if you're asking the question, like, who are the white people in this conflict, right? That's a way of saying not who are the heroes, but who are the villains. And so now Israel's kind of American constructed whiteness ends up being an albatross around its neck. Now, sadly, tragically, ironically, at both points that construction of Israel was purely in the American imagination, both when Israel was created and even more so today. Like today, Israel is a majority, what would be called Mizrahi country, right? It's a majority, it's made up by a majority of, I suppose, what for the purposes of American demographics you'd call brown people, right? So it's mostly Jews from Middle Eastern countries, from Africa, from North Africa, from, from East Africa. The vast majority of Jews in Israel are, are non-white. And so... What is it about, I guess, American filmmaking about Israel during this period that pushes it to see Israel not as Israel, but just as a canvas upon which to paint America, right? Is that what's going on in Exodus? To a certain extent, that's what's going on in Exodus and what's going on currently in terms of America's response to what's happening in Israel. At the time... Otto Preminger was a prominent liberal in, uh, he was Jewish, a prominent liberal in in Hollywood. Uh, Dalton Trumbo, um, obviously on the left side of the political spectrum. And they saw America as, as a set of values that they 
believe should govern the world. And those were not so much Jewish values as they were liberal values. And that is why Preminger, uh, in a, in essence, rejected Leon Uris as a screenwriter for his own novel and hired Dalton Trumbo as a screenwriter instead. I think what we've lost sight of is the magnitude of the problem that Israel as a new state faced in 1948, because they had to do several things simultaneously. First, they had to declare a state. Second, they had to win the war that was declared against them on day one of that state. Third, they had to build an economy. Their economy at the time was mostly contributions and donations from people around the world. They had to build an economy while they were declaring a state and fighting a war. And finally, they had to welcome refugees, not only the survivors of the Holocaust, but the refugees from the Arab countries who kicked out the Jews when Israel declared independence in 1948. So it had to do all these things simultaneously, welcoming refugees from literally around the world, North Africa in terms of Arab countries, places like Iraq and the, in the Middle East, Europe, obviously, in terms of the Holocaust. But there were also Americans who wanted to go to Israel and fight for the Jewish state. So it wasn't just the poor and the refugees and the refuse of the world, like our Statue of Liberty welcomes. It was everybody who wanted to be part of a historic event. And so I think to a certain extent, it's, it's understandable that we see things in terms of color these days, because we're saturated with um, an awareness of what color means in various aspects of life. But back then, it was a question of Jewish survival, not of white Jews, not of any color Jews, Jews of every color, from every background, from every place, literally around the world, and doing it while trying to create a state, survive as a state, fight a war, and also build an economy. I'm not sure that's ever been done in history. And that was the key mistake, in my opinion, of the movie versus the novel, because the novel carries you all the way through Jewish history and gives you this appreciation of this accomplishment. The movie gives you an appreciation of what happened in 1948 with having to fight and needing a hero like Paul Newman to lead the charge, but that's all it does. And it's amazing how little it does, given the richness of the period. So I, having read the novel this year, I had not read it because, uh, like most people, I had been told in college, this is not great literature. This is it's not, it's not Philip Roth. It's not Saul Bellow. You know? Yeah, no, this is this is, you know, please, you got you got better things to read. So, of course, I didn't read it. It reminds me of how when you're younger, like it's cool to like John Lennon. And then when you grow up, you realize actually the better one was Paul McCartney. Same thing. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or even George Harrison. Uh, right. Exactly. Oh, Penny Lane. It's too saccharine. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I must have seen the movie, but it was a while back. So I don't remember. Uh, uh, maybe I was too young to see it. But in any event, reading the novel and seeing the movie this year, led me to the conclusion you should save your time on the movie it but read the book the novel is a very you can tell why it sold millions of copies and in that sense it was great literature because the saw a saw bellow and 
Philip Roth and people like that, Bernard Malamud, wrote great things, but they sold in the thousands, tens of thousands. Leon Uris's book sold in the millions and had an impact on history. Um, under one definition of great literature, that would you know suffice. So I, I believe uh, Leon Uris's book ought to be read today, certainly as a matter of history and understanding how Israeli history and American history intersected, uh, but also for the story itself, because the story is amazing and it needs the kind of dramatization that Leon Uris brought to it. So I want to talk about the second movie that you discussed, which is which is Munich. Now, here's the thing about Munich, purely as an aesthetic description, it is a good movie in a way that Exodus is not necessarily a good movie, meaning that it's well done. It's not as well done as the next movie we'll talk about, but it's very well done. Now, the interesting thing about Munich is that thematically, when you contrast it with with Exodus, so in Exodus, as you point out, or at least as you 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 imply in the essay, Israel needs to be for Exodus. Israel needs to be rescued from religion, right? So the Seder, as you as you said at the end of the book, turns into like a non sectarian funeral. But in Munich, Israel needs to be rescued by religion, right? So Eric Bana's main character ends up rejecting his Israeli identity in favor of like just being Jewish in Brooklyn. So what's happening with the image of Israel in Munich, and how has it shifted since Exodus? Well, Munich, uh, as you say, was was actually technically an outstanding movie. It got f- nominated as Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Director, every major category. I mean, this is Spielberg not messing around, you know? No, he, he, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think he's obviously <laughs> one of the greatest. Um, and this movie uh, is one of his most skillful. So as a movie, as a, as a matter of cinema, there, unlike Exodus, the movie, there's nothing to criticize. It, it's an extraordinarily powerful movie at the beginning when it reenacts the murder of the Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics. That is done and recreated in a scene of, of, of horrifying violence. And Spielberg conveys it with a skill that only he could do. But it is the story of uh, Israel's response to that event and other acts of uh, terrorism against it by trying to hunt down the people who killed their athletes and kill them. It actually is becomes a movie then as to the moral hazard of responding to violence with violence because the movie catalogs all the times where the Israelis got bad information and targeted the wrong people, or or people who were in the vicinity um, were harmed by accident, or a child was almost killed. And so it's a category of uh, the moral hazard of war, but that's inherent in war. Every war, we all know, is hell. So you can't withdraw from the world simply because it's difficult to fight back and there's a moral hazard involved in doing so. But what the movie does is, in effect, say there's a difference between being an Israeli, where you have these moral compromises, and being a Jew in Brooklyn, where you can just enjoy Shabbat every Friday night. And at the end of the movie, um, Eric Bana, as the leader of the 
a group that targeted the the Arabs that murdered the Israeli athletes, he goes to Brooklyn and turns his back on Israel. And the person from the Mossad who was running him, Ephraim, says, I can't do that. I'm going back to Israel. So in effect, it was an American, again, an American perspective on a difficult Israeli situation and taking what looks to be like the high road in one sense and in another is getting off the road and not even participating in trying to get to the destination that your fellow Jews are trying to get to in their car on that road. So it's a very well-made movie, but it was a, it's a difficult movie. And what I did in the essay was try to say, what what was Spielberg thinking? Because this was a 1972 event. And a, and a 2005 movie. So we're talking about 33 years later, why make this movie? And we're talking about, it's based on a book, but the book itself is 20 years old. So what was it that caused somebody like Steven Spielberg to want to make this movie at this time? And my answer was, it really wasn't about the 1972. It wasn't about the murder of the Israeli athletes. It wasn't about the retaliation. It was about the Iraq war because the movie was made in 2005. It was when the Iraq war, which had been in 2003, which initially was a success with the elimination of Saddam Hussein and the freedom for the Iraqis from his tyranny, but the war was going bad. And in effect, it is a plea to America to come home, to get off the road of wars in the Middle East and come home and be America in Brooklyn. So once again, it was taking an American perspective on an Israeli event and making it a moral lesson really for Americans rather rather than for Israelis. And the screenwriter was Tony Kushner, who himself is another man of the left. And it definitely reflected that that perspective. So you're, you're right to, to note that these two movies, purportedly about Israel, are really about America and American perspectives on the world. And they teach us less about Israel than they teach us about America. And some of what they teach us about Israel is in fact wrong. So there's a hazard in relying on the movies for us to understand events in in Jewish and Israeli history. I was always so struck by the opening scenes of the movie, right? Because as you said, the opening scene of Munich is just this, it's like Spielberg at the height of his powers, depicting the Black September murder of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics, where... As the the real, I, I believe it's like it's one of the either one of the characters in the movie or at least one of the characters in the book upon which the movie's based makes the point that like you have these Israeli athletes that are all kind of murdered in front of the world and in the 1972 Olympics and like an hour later everyone's back to playing volleyball again, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was always struck by that opening scene because you kind of watch it and you feel like. There's always a difference between, and we'll get back to this later, but there's always a difference between when a director or an artist loves the thing that they're working on and when an artist is critiquing the thing that they're working on. And those are two different vibes. And you can tell that the only thing in the movie that Spielberg loves rather than critiques is that opening scene. 
It's just so well done. And I remember being very disturbed by it at the time, but I did not have the conceptual language to articulate why. And then I, I remember about when, when was it like a year or two ago when Dara Horn came out with her book, People Love Dead Jews, that kind of finally provided me with the conceptual language for that. So is this, a, is this just an example of like, there's nobody purer, more beloved, more helpful, and more helpful to other people for seeing themselves than Jews who are dead and gone, right? And in a way, you know, the, the West is built on a fascination with and a reverence for dead Jews. You can look at the Gospels for one very prominent example of that. And, and so much of what the West has done that's great has been built on learning the le lessons from dead Jews. And at the same time, so much of what so many of the missed opportunities in Western history have come from failing to appreciate anyone other than dead Jews. So is this is this an example of that? In Am I reading Munich correctly, that this is kind of like the scene upon which Spielberg just most lavished his, his love? I think you're making a very astute observation and an astute connection uh, between the movie and, and Daryl Horn's book, because you're correct. That first scene, which goes on for 15, 20 minutes, is horrifying, but it's about dead Jews. They don't, obviously, literally, they, they don't speak. They have no speaking role. And the only speaking role given in the movie for a speech about what's going on is given to a Palestinian Arab who speaks about the Palestinian cause. So you are sympathetic that Jews have died, but in terms of responding to the current situation, the character that Spielberg and Kushner are pointing to is the Palestinian, not the Jews, and certainly not the situation in 2005 when the movie was made, when Israel, having already several times offered the Palestinians a state on substantially all of the West Bank or Judea and Samaria and Gaza with a capital in part of Jerusalem and seen that rejected in favor of a barbaric attack on Israeli civilians in restaurants, in hotels, in synagogues, on the road, in schools. That is not the focus of the attention of the movie. The focus of the attention is the moral hazard of, of war and the Palestinian cause, which is given quite an eloquent uh, boost in the middle of the movie by the Palestinian character. And I think you're right, by the way, that that speech works so much better and is so much more morally coherent and would have been so much more morally coherent in the mouth of like an Iraqi insurgent against the American invasion of Iraq. Right. Absolutely. It would have made, it would have made perfect moral sense in the mouth of such a character. Absolutely. And that character would have been a current character at the time the movie right. was made. Right. Not going back to the 1970s to allow an Arab character to talk about the Palestinian cause. What's that all about? And the only thing I could conclude was it was about the, you know, the 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 left had turned against the Iraq war at that time. And what Israel was facing was a metaphor for that. And you can tell that because of the final scene in the movie is when uh, Eric Bana goes one way and Ephraim goes the other way, the, mo the camera pulls back 
and silently in the middle of the screen are the Twin Towers. Right. And it is a scene of 9-11 and of of chickens coming home to roost. You were involved in a war in the Middle East and look what's what's happened now. The Twin Towers are down. Maybe we should all be good Jews and go to Brooklyn and leave the world alone. That was the real message of the movie. I hadn't thought of the connection with Dara Horn's uh, excellent book, but I think I think you're absolutely right. I want to talk about the faith element of this, and that's the the being Jewish in Brooklyn. So Eric Bana's character, Avner, moving to Brooklyn, it's presented as like the morally sophisticated choice, right? Living a life of Jewish values in Brooklyn rather than having to compromise those values, apparently, by living in Israel. And the choice of Jewishness in Brooklyn as a morally fitting alternative to Jewishness in Israel really struck me, in particular because it's a fine contrast with another, even more recent film, uh, American Pickle. So in that movie with Seth Rogen, the young Jewish millennial character played by Seth Rogen himself realizes that his kind of like assimilated Americanized life is morally and spiritually empty. And so he seeks out the traditional faith of his ancestors by going back to Europe, actually, and praying in a synagogue with, you know, with Orthodox Jews. Now, when that movie came out, uh, Liel Leibovitz, friend of the pod, shouts to Liel, wrote a fantastic essay for First Things in which he pointed out that the movie's choice to kind of cast that old-time religious Judaism as a thing of the past, the thing that you can only find back in the old country of Europe, was just, like, incredibly strange since all of that traditional faith actually existed in extremely vibrant and wonderful fashion in the very Brooklyn in which Seth Rogen's character lived. And like the Brooklyn Hasidic or Yeshivish or, or, or Orthodox communities. So in one movie, in Munich, the protagonist specifically chooses Jewishness in Brooklyn as an alternative to his current identity. Well, in the other movie, in American Pickle, the protagonist conspicuously ignores Jewishness in Brooklyn as an alternative to his current identity. So what do we make of the changing role that kind of like that Brooklyn-based traditional Jewish community plays in the Hollywood imagination? Why does Hollywood undertake this shift from having that Jew in Brooklyn be a haven, an escape, versus having it be something that you should ignore or can ignore? Well, one answer is it's the passage of 20 years. Right, that's true. Between the, the two movies being made. And that, that's one of the things I noticed in, in writing my essay was you have to know what year a movie was made and what's happening in America in order to understand what the movie is trying to convey. So what you're pointing out is that 20 years after this movie uses uh, Brooklyn as a metaphor for moral purity, in effect, uh, or religious purity. It's a different sort of metaphor, and it's not one that has the same meaning in America 20 years later. And perhaps it's because it's too associated with Orthodox Jews. We look funny, right? <laughs> controversial. Yeah, controversial. Right. So, which is unfortunate. It, that itself is another step along a um, a slippery slope. I think of seeing uh, religion and Judaism and orthodoxy and, and Brooklyn as a metaphor for those things in a light that's not as positive as 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 it once was.
So I want to talk about the third movie that you discussed in the essay, and that is my favorite of the three, uh, Top Gun Maverick. So Top Gun, I remember seeing it in the theater. I actually saw it in the theater with two friends of mine who are also rabbis, two good friends of mine, shouts to Rip Simcha and Rip Daniel. And I remember as I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, Surely at some point, Israel will be mentioned because it was so transparent. Like to anyone who knows Israeli history, it was just so transparently <laughs> ripped from Israeli headlines. And yet it doesn't. At no point does that mention come. So can you talk about Top Gun as an Israel movie, even though it doesn't mention it? It's funny. I read uh, every review I could find of, of, of Top Gun and nobody, nobody mentioned the Israeli connection. Like, we were talking about it as we were watching the movie in the theater. We're like, oh, this is, I mean, like, this is like Israel and Iraq and Osirak, right? Or Israel and Syria, right? Like, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you'll indulge me for 60 seconds, because I'm sure everybody has seen the movie, but for the three people <laughs> listening right now who didn't, you know, t- you know, Tom Cruise shows up 25 years after the first Top Gun, and he's going to train the new hotshots to go on a mission, which requires them to take their aircraft beyond its specifications, and in two minutes, uh, bomb an unnamed facility in an unnamed country that is about to become a nuclear plant and get back safely. And they're going to take their F-16s or F-15s, which at this point are out of date technology and see if they can do it. And the military brass typified by John Hamm says, you can't do it. Don't do it. They do it anyway. They're successful. And in a harrowing scene, I mean, they fly a hundred feet off the ground. They go way up 10,000 feet or more, and then way down in two sets of bombers. And they, on a, on a very small target, hit it and get out. And the, the anti-aircraft fires at them, but doesn't get them down and they get back safely. It's a miracle. And, and by the way, let me just say, it is absolutely bonkers how awesome that scene is. It's great. <laughs> it's, incre- it, it's incredible. And and one of the characters, after Tom Cruise says, you know, this is what we're going to do, and he leaves, one of the characters, one of the, the pilots turns the other and says, we're about to do something that's never been done in the history of aviation. And nobody realizes, actually, it was done twice by Israel, <laughs> twice. You know, once in 1981, when Menachem Begin sent uh, in virtually the same situation, the Israeli pilots to bomb Saddam Hussein's uh, nuclear facility. And then again in 2007, when uh, Prime Minister Olmert sent Israeli pilots to bomb Assad's plant in Syria. So they did it twice. And uh, there's been several books written about the 1981 strike. And when I read those books and became a quasi-expert on what happened, and then I went back to look uh, to see Top Gun again, Top Gun is a documentary. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And then I would read these reviews by very young people writing film reviews these days who weren't alive when the 1981 strike on Iraq and Saddam Hussein occurred. And they would write, well, this is obviously a video game with a superhero. And they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd name the video game and that they thought was the basis of the film. And I hunted down that video game and I watched it. it is, <laughs> yes, there's things that happen that happen in a video game. It is not what happened in 1981. What happened in 1981 was virtually identical 
to the mission and the way it was accomplished in Top Gun. And they flew a hundred. They fly, flew a hundred feet off the ground. They flew way beyond the specifications of their aircraft in 1981, which was they could go 500 miles, not the 700 that they needed to go to Iraq. And the way they did it was they came up with uh, a way of discharging their fuel tanks as they used them, which enabled them to get there and get back, but did not leave them enough fuel to have a dogfight. So if they had had a dogfight with a heavily defended Iraqi nuclear plant, None of them would have come back. All of them did. And one of them was uh, Amos Yadlin. Amos Yadlin was one of the lead pilots. And then in 2007, which is 28 years later, he's the one who really maps out the plan for hitting the Syrian one. So he's Maverick. <laughs> it's the scene. It's the very scene of top, uh, you know, of, of who's going to teach us. Well, in comes Tom Cruise. Well, in came almost Yodlin, you know, to, to teach him again. It, it's extraordinary. So for those of you who enjoyed the movie, the first time it's entertainment, go back and watch it as a documentary. It not only was it, not something that had never been done. Israel did it, and everybody was surprised. And the the people from the Defense Department in the United States came to the Yadlin afterwards and said, "How'd you do it? We we sold those planes to you with specifications that wouldn't permit this to happen." And he said he he told them what they did, and they did it. So it's it's virtually the equivalent, the technological equivalent of the first scene when Tom Cruise goes. 10.1 G's and uh, has to bail out and uh, and uh, survives. Um, uh, that's what Israel did, and they did it twice. It's an amazing thing, and we. It's a shame Israel's not mentioned in the movie. Every, everybody sort of knows that the movie's about Iran and the threats to Israel, but it's not mentioned. And people don't realize that Israel actually was faced with that situation twice and did it twice. And now, of course, is faced with it again. So the movie has a certain current relevance as well. It's not a fantasy. It's not a superhero situation. It's a real-life situation facing real-life Israelis, both in the past and currently. I will say, knowing that Amos Yadlin is basically the real life Maverick was disappointing to me because it ruined my favorite fan theory about Top Gun Maverick, which I can't remember who started it. Maybe it was Sonny Bunch or Ross Douthat. But either way, my favorite reading of the movie is that actually Maverick dies in that first scene when he takes the plane was too much, you know, too fast. And the rest of the movie is him just working through purgatory, trying to avenge, the, you know, trying to cleanse the sins of his past with Goose's son. It's a, I thought that was such a great reading of the movie. Unfortunately, it's based on Amos Yadlin, <laughs> who did not die. <laughs> well, well, and in fact, I, I talked to somebody who was knowledgeable, very knowledgeable about Jewish history and Jewish political history. And he said, well, was it? in 1981, it was it was that, you know, they sent one plane and it was a surprise. Nobody knew about it. They got back. It's it's not Top Gun. And, and in fact, in 1981, as in Top Gun, it was the eight top pilots in the system. And you had all the kids competing to be the ones who could do it. They, they all wanted to be in it. And so it, it was the same number of pilots with the same kind of training 
and the same kind of uh, mission, including the going up 10,000 feet and going straight down and having a very small target. The, the, it wasn't the little box in, in Top Gun, but it was the dome on a particular building. And it was in a time when they didn't have GPS and, and you know, Google Maps didn't lead them to the to the place. They they had a technology that that sent them on a mission to a place they hadn't seen. And they had to find this dome of a particular building and spot it and get in there in their two minute run and get out. And there were SAMs and anti-aircraft defenses. It was exactly the movie. It's extraordinary how the movie captures what would actually happen back then. One of my favorite episodes of this podcast was with uh, Jordan Calhoun, friend of the pod of The Atlantic, who wrote an amazing book called Piccolo is Black. And the premise of the book, very, very, you know, succinctly, was that uh, when you're growing up African-American in the United States of America at a time when you weren't seeing a lot of representation uh, of your people in mainstream entertainment, you would always gravitate towards these characters that just, you know, that just felt black to you. So so Jordan says, you know, uh, for him, that was like Piccolo and Dragon Ball Z. It's this classic cartoon that that always was like that classic character that everybody knew was African-American, but wasn't right. It was like a purple alien. And I remember and we talked about this on the pod, he was extraordinary. Growing up Jewish in America, you had the same thing, right? Because there would be all of these major icons, like no one, there are no like Orthodox Jews, right? On <laughs> Even today, there are very few Orthodox Jews represented in entertainment, but you'd always gravitate towards these like Jewish seeming characters or, or artists who absolutely are not Jewish or not meant to be Jewish, but just felt like Billy Joel is a good example. Uh, George Costanza, another one, like an explicitly non-Jewish character who just like everyone knew was Jewish. And what Top Gun Maverick does is it kind of reverses that, right? Because this is a story that is absolutely, I mean, how could it not be consciously patterned on a very distinctly Jewish story? And yet the movie goes out of its way for whatever reason, but goes out of its way to make it so that the story doesn't feel Jewish or Israeli in any way. So it's sort of like the reverse Piccolo is black phenomenon. What do we make of that? Yeah, I, th that that's another perceptive observation. And I think I can answer it by borrowing from a response to my essay that Edward Rothstein of the Wall Street Journal wrote. Um, he did a 2000 word essay of his own in response to my essay and his observation about Top Gun, which is really the answer to your question, is that great as the movie was and as obvious as it was to knowledgeable people that it was the Israeli mission, it's portrayed as the triumph of an individual, Maverick, and the individual pilots who undertake the same mission. It's not a national project, really. Uh, there's no real controversy over whether these pilots should do it. America's not in existential danger. If it fails, the mission fails. There won't be a Top Gun 3, but there won't be any international significance other than that. So uh, Ed Rothstein observed that it's a, in a certain sense, it's another movie about American individualism, not a national mission. 
and uh, it, not even an American national mission. It's kind of uh, Tom Cruise, you know, goes out there and shows what individuals can do, and he brings along the individuals who are the pilots. But there's no sense in the movie that there's a greater political, geopolitical, national cause, and that that's unfortunate because what we're missing in America to a certain extent is what we had before, but we don't seem to have or are in the process of losing is this idea of America as an exceptional country with an, with an exceptional message and history to bring to the world. That's missing from Top Gun, but it's, it's obviously present in what Israel faces. These missions are existential for the entire state of Israel and, and to a certain extent for the Jewish people. So I recommend uh, anyone listening to search out at Mosaic uh, as a, a, a Ed Rothstein's essay, which is a comment to mine. So I think the common thread in your reception, which so resonated with me, of these three movies and so much of how Hollywood has dealt with kind of the story of Israel is that this is really just kind of America projecting its own anxieties onto some foreign part of the world. It's like, it's basically just like Hollywood Orientalism. But if I had to kind of steel man it for a minute, couldn't you say, look, there's this really long time honored tradition in Western civilization of using foreign societies, particularly from the Near East, to understand your own society, right? So take Montesquieu, for example, right? So after, uh, on a previous episode with Daniel Dreisbach, when we talked about the founders and the, and the Bible, Professor Dreisbach pointed out that the most quoted work amongst the writings of thinkers in the founding era, the American founding, by far, it's not even close, is the Book of Deuteronomy. But after the Book of Deuteronomy, the next quoted source is Montesquieu. And... You know, Montesquieu, one of his most famous works is the Persian letters, right, where he's using uh, these characters from Persia, actually from Isfahan, to kind of travel to the West and make these, you know, and make these observations about Western life. And Westerners are, and Europeans are kind of supposed to learn about themselves by looking through the eyes of of these Persian characters. Now, you know, it's not the same because there it's like an, it's it's at least in Montesquieu's case, it's an explicitly, you know, self-absorbed project. But isn't there kind of just like this long tradition of using the East as a way to help think about the West? And, you know, maybe we should condemn the whole tradition, but at the very least, it's not that different. Right. Wouldn't that would that be a way to steel man it? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting way to look at it. And I have a, a book that just got published this week, actually, called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. And one of the themes in that book is actually that Zionism and Americanism are related. Americanism being the civil religion of freedom and democracy, and Zionism in Israel being the free and democratic state for the Jews. The relationship of those two uh, plays out in the Middle East. You, you can have universal ideals like, like American ideals, but they need a place in order to be realized. And the Middle East has always been the sort of confluence, perhaps because of Jerusalem and, and the three religions and their relationship to it, but also because it's strategically always been the most one of the most important parts of the world and currently economically is as well as strategically. So that's where ideas get played out is in the Middle East, not just in Israel, but in the Arab Spring, 
the things that were done to try to bring democracy to that area, what Israel is trying to do to stand up not only for itself, but also for um, its Arab allies against a new hegemon, and that being Iran, which is a form of imperialism trying to take over the Middle East. So I think you're right that in the Middle East is where the ideas that have been the main ideas of Western civilization and Jewish history are being played out as we speak. So it's a mistake, I think, to review it as just a local geographical situation. It involves the greatest ideas of of modern history and what the future of modern history is going to be. Well said. So you, as you said, you have a new book out, A Nun Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. Plug the book. I love it. Now you've talked a little bit about it. Okay, so you've just, but it's really like it just came out. You can go order it on Amazon or anywhere you get books. This is probably premature, but now that you've put out this book, what's your like? What's your next project? Have you thought about that yet? Well, the, this is eight stories, and um, what I've learned is there's an inexhaustible supply of stories. And I'll just quickly tell you because this is a great a great story. And one of the things I want to do is, if I had the time time and world enough, a book about the spouses of all these great people in Jewish history, not just women, but Golda Meir's spouse. These are people who sacrificed in order to let people like Golda Meir uh, and others do the things they did in Jewish history. And the story I want to tell is that when he was retired, Ben-Gurion was at his kibbutz, and one night he in bed with, with his wife, Paula, he's reading a history of the Jewish people. And he puts the book down and he says he leans over and he says to to her, do you know how many truly great leaders in Israel, in Jewish history there have been? And she says, yes, I do. And he says, you do? And he says, yeah. and she says, yes, I do. He says, well, okay, how many? And she says, one less than you think. <laughs> and she was... She had to take care of their children for nine months while Ben Gurion was off in England and America trying to build a Jewish army in 1940. She was she was an important historical figure, even though she has no historical accomplishments that we read about. And it's the same with uh, Vera Weitzman and Joanna Jabotinsky and others. And um, I don't know if there's a book in that, but there certainly are a lot of good stories. Wow. Unbelievable. Rick, thank you so much for being here. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Speaking of Montesquieu, in the Persian letters, number 137, he has one of his Persian aristocratic characters write, Men are truly unfortunate. They float endlessly between false expectations and ridiculous fears. And instead of depending on reason, they think up monsters to intimidate them or phantoms that seduce them. I think Montesquieu's being too harsh here. Storytelling or even myth is one of those incredibly powerful forces that can enlighten the curious and endow the apathetic with purpose. And I think the partisans of reason can sometimes delude themselves into imagining that the monsters and phantoms that they do encounter simply aren't real. That said, Montesquieu does have a point. Human beings tend to want just-so stories, and it's important to recognize when we're forcing reality into a too-tight boot. 
just to fit our preconceived notions, our anxieties and aspirations, or as Montesquieu put it, our false expectations and ridiculous fears. And we should be especially vigilant when the subject of our storytelling is the land, the people, and the polity of Israel, the Holy Land, perhaps the most potent intellectual and spiritual force in the alchemical history of the West and the American Republic. And so, after all, isn't it just so fitting that the fictional character to whom Montesquieu's Letter 137 is addressed is Nathaniel, a physician from Livorno, and one of the book's most interesting Jewish characters. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolute blast. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere that you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.